From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The acting inspector general at the Pentagon will lead the oversight effort of coronavirus stimulus money. Glenn Fine will lead a committee of nine inspectors general from across the government. The chairman of the Council of Inspectors General for Integrity and Efficiency, Michael Horowitz, appointed Fine Monday. The Office of Personnel Management has new guidance for federal employees working from home and taking care of a child or family member. OPM says agencies should offer these employees flexible working hours. Federal Times reports OPM says agencies can consider employees with special circumstances for excused absences. The Defense Department wants Congress to keep its future year defense program spending plans classified. The Pentagon says opening up the numbers could allow adversaries to get sensitive information with data mining tools. Defense News reports the numbers have been open since 1989. Chief Human Capital Officers across government say they're getting more and more employees ready to telework. Congressman Don Beyer wants every federal employee that can to be able to work remotely like he is. Congressman Beyer represents Virginia's 8th District. Congressman, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You wrote a letter to OPM about Hi. telework recently. What did you tell the Office of Personnel Management, Congressman? Well, early on, I think it was three or four weeks ago, um, I led a letter to OPM asking them to make telework available to every possible federal employee. You know, what we've discovered um, ever more severely is that the, the stricter we are, the more people stay home, the more people physically distance, the faster this will be over and the fewer deaths. And we especially want to take care of our federal employees. What are you hearing from your federal employee constituents about what they're experiencing with telework through their agencies? Well, it's a mix. I mean, for many people, it's working very successfully. And in fact, we, we build on years of experience with people teleworking two days a week, three days a week. Um, some of the specific concerns have been around people that are still going to work, they have to be in, in the buildings and not having sufficient protective equipment or clear protocols about how they could protect themselves. What's some of the concerns have been about, as you just mentioned, childcare. You know, if you have to report to the State Department or the, the Pentagon and your kids are home from school, who's taking care of them and how do you deal with that? Uh, and we've had huge concerns from the contractors who uh, didn't get the same kinds of telework messages that the federal employees did, and yet the contractors were often embedded in the agencies working side by side. So we really had a, a hard time sorting that out. What's your sense of what we can learn from this about operations in the executive branch, sir, that we can take away for the post-coronavirus experience, not just regarding telework, but regarding all kinds of agency operations and the way that agencies communicate information? If I take it from our own experience, this actually is an opportunity for us to, to learn to work much better together. You know, we, we've discovered all kinds of platforms like Skype, we're doing this, Zoom, um, and a number of others. Uh, and like we're doing a staff meeting every morning at 10 o'clock with uh, everybody on our team. And it's really remarkable how much more we're getting done maybe than we got done before when we were there in, in the office in person. Um, I think we every one of us has to adapt in a, in a constructive way to find ways to be as productive or more productive than we were before.
In fact, Francis, one of the things you know is people tend to work harder at home than they do at work. They don't gather around the water fountain. So my chief of staff is constantly telling us, stop with the 14-hour days and the 12-hour days, you know. Go spend a little time with your family, too. What and, and the reason I ask that is because we focus sometimes on unintended consequences, which strikes me as a negative, and don't focus on unintended benefits, things that we learn as a result of situations like this. You know, I hear from chief human capital officers about the government shutdown. They learn things about accelerating uh, projects and so on in the wake of the shutdown. They didn't want to learn those lessons the way they learned them, just as we don't want to learn these lessons these ways, but they're there anyway and those opportunities exist. What do you think is the most important thing that you want to see after this is over from agency leaders about how they responded to this, Congressman? Uh, let me, Francis, let me come back to culture, because I do think that's the most important part is every one of us, whether we're in the office or we're home, we want to be respected, paid attention to, listened to. And the biggest motivation for almost all of us is the work itself. So to the extent that, that our leaders, our bosses, give us responsibilities and ask us to rise to, to, to those responsibilities, people are going to be happier and, and more productive. And I, I do really do think this is um, it's a tragic crisis with the lives that are lost, will be lost, uh, but we can also grow stronger because of it. Um, back to the issue of the rank and file federal employees like the people that you represent in your district, Congressman, what resources would you like to provide for them or would you like to see the executive branch provide for them to be able to do their jobs better uh, during this crisis? Well, um, technology is probably the, the biggest, most important one. In anticipation of this crisis in our little office, we were able to uh, get laptops for virtually everybody on our team to take home, loaded with the right software and the right access to, for example, the, the, the congressional computers to be able to do their job. If you're working in the Department of Education or Defense or wherever, you want to be able to go home and still be productive, still be functional. Uh, but then also, um, I think the most important technology is still management is the kind of leadership they're getting to make sure that people are staying on task, they know what their job is, they know what their contribution is going to be to the nation in this time. We're in the middle of a transition, obviously, at the Office of Personnel Management. Does that personnel change concern you as far as the way that the administration's responding to this, uh, this situation regarding the federal workforce? I think the turmoil at the top was certainly not helpful. Um, it does concern me that that thing fell apart because the head of OPM felt he wasn't getting sufficient respect from the 29-year-olds at the White House. Um, but that's a whole different can of worms trying to figure out how the leadership is working there. There's been extraordinary turnover in these last three and a half years of this administration in contrast to the previous eight years and the previous 16 years. A turnover is never... Uh, crazy turnover is never very good. On the other hand, you work with what you have, and we want the current leadership at the OPM to be successful and accomplished, and we'll do whatever we can to support them. Congressman Beyer, thanks very much for your time. I appreciate having you here, sir. Thanks, Francis, very much. Up next, the business of government continues no matter what happens in the world. Straight ahead on Government Matters, trends in contracting with or without COVID-19. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
This Industry Matters segment is brought to you by BDO. Welcome back. The Department of Defense will get audit finding remediation support services from Guidehouse. The Deputy Secretary of Defense, David Norquist, says the department's now working on its third audit. John Saad is partner and national security segment leader at, at Guidehouse. John, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What are you seeing as far as the way that the Defense Department's interacting with vendors like you to execute on the audit? What kinds of questions are they asking you as they're working on year three? Well, you know, the audit's an iterative process, and I think through that you're looking at a lot of different things from technology to data to processes, policies and procedures. So what they're asking us for is to bring insight as we're executing throughout these various processes and make improvements along the way. One of the things that we've seen in particular as of late is how we can leverage advanced analytics, rapid process automation, and other type technologies to really learn as we're going and improve as we go forward. What's your sense of the way that the department's making progress? Are they making progress through improving processes? Are they making progress through improving the data using the analytics tools that exist? Are the analytics tools evolving themselves or is it maybe all of those or something else, John? It's all of those. And if you look at DHS as an example, albeit a much smaller organization, that process really helped the department understand all the different operating components, where they had commonalities, where they had process and policy gaps, and how to improve that along the way. So I think we're seeing a similar thing on a much larger organization with Department of Defense. And how can they learn from this process and build and grow from it, as opposed to just concluding an audit and ending there? And, and that's the big difference. Finishing the audit is, uh, strikes me as a compliance exercise. Learning from the audit strikes me as what the real value is. Am I reading that right? That's absolutely correct. In fact, not only are there things that you learn from the audit and build in advance from, but then there are other things that you can work on and improve as you go beyond that to really put your organization in an ability to deliver the mission more efficiently uh, and more effectively. And I think that's what they're looking to do consistent with the story of other agencies in past that have done this. What's reasonable to expect on this timeline? I, I believe that uh, Secretary Norquist said when the department began this might be 10 years until uh, they reached a clean audit opinion, but some big chunks of the department are already hitting that milestone. What What's a reasonable timeline look like in your view, John? It's really hard to say because of the complexity and size of the organization, but I think the most important thing is that progress is being made in various pockets over time. Um, it's, it's hard, really hard to say with such a complex and large organization. I think the true test though is, are there things that they're seeing in a given year that they're improving upon in the next year, whether that be around IT controls, whether that be around other internal controls, around operations and such. I think that's really a testament to whether or not this is a valued exercise in making the forward progress that's needed. So as long as progress continues to happen, that's the most important milestone. And that's, that's what the Inspector General's Office at DOD has said both of the last two years. They're, seeing, they're, they're not seeing backsliding. So I suppose that's a, a pretty good accomplishment in and of itself. Is that, am I right? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's right, Francis. I think that's the key is that uh, we're learning from this process and making improvements throughout as we move forward. What are the specific things that maybe individual branches or other organizations within the department should be learning from their audit process every year? Whether they're already reaching a clean opinion or not, what should they be taking away? What should they be looking at for efficient operation and better operation within a particular organization? 
I think a lot of times when you look at an organization over its history, you might find that things have been built up over time around the way that they've done things as opposed to what the policies and procedures actually state. The audit does a great job in uncovering some of those things and making things more streamlined and efficient. I think you also start to find out what data you have, um, the hygiene of the data, whether it can be relied upon, um, what the gaps are, and how to make sure that you put processes and systems in place going forward to give you a better read on what you're doing. Um, what we've seen throughout the process working with agencies like DHS as they've evolved into their audit opinion and internal controls opinion is a lot of learning around technology and systems that they can use so they can answer these questions more readily going forward as opposed to constantly doing these manual review processes to try to understand their current state of operations. So I'm confident that there's a lot of learning going on throughout this process. What are the agencies that are doing automation well doing to have the success that they're having, John? You know, there's an increase in the function of the chief data officer. I think the understanding that they're collecting a lot of data and now really thinking about how to use it for analytic purposes, making sure that data has the same characteristics across an entity so that it can be leveraged in some story that you're telling around that entity. Anecdotally, what we've seen in the evolution through CFO shops and some of the places that we're working is that data analytics was an afterthought several years ago. And now it is really what the basis of the work is. It's data scientists, data analysts, using technologies or what is being asked for, as opposed to adding people like that to your team to augment your more manual processes. So it's leading with the collection and analysis and moving quickly into the determination of outcomes from there. John Saad of Guidehouse, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you here. Appreciate your insight. Great, thank you. Up next, the stimulus package the president signed has some big impacts on acquisition. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's changing for procurement and how? Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The new stimulus package includes $340 billion for federal agencies. The package also includes new guidance for federal acquisitions. Joe Jordan is CEO at Actaparo and former administrator of federal procurement policy. Joe, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on. What are the acquisition pieces that you see coming out of the stimulus package that make the most impact right now? Uh, well, Francis, thanks for having me. And um, there are a number of pieces uh, within the CARES Act that will affect our acquisition community, um, both uh, the federal contracting officers as well as um, uh, contractors in, in the business community. But the biggest is the Section 3610. And, and what it basically it's called Federal Contractor Authority. What it basically says is uh, contractors can be reimbursed uh, at their lowest you know, allowable rates, up to 40 hours a week for each employee um, to repay leave, including sick leave. So this is a big deal. This is, um, you know, people call this a stimulus package. It's, it's not, it's really a survival package. There's not a lot of stimuli in there, mm -hmm. but this is the type of thing to try to get contractors to keep their employees in a ready state, um, to keep them employed, to keep them getting paid uh, during this time where a lot of contracts can't be performed. You know, service contracts that require you to be on premises uh, largely can't be performed, you know, due to social distancing and the other CDC recommendations. And so this is, is really the biggest piece. Uh, and the question is how quickly and in what form it's implemented. 
what would be the best way to get that money out to the vendors as quickly as possible to be able to keep that cash flow going? Because it strikes me the company issue is important, but the employee issue is just as or more important because people got to do something to be able to take care of their families during this. You're spot on, Francis. Uh, you know, there are obviously a number of other provisions within the act that, that help companies, especially small businesses. Um, there's significant, the $350 billion for an expansion of the 7A loan program, things like that. Uh, but to your point about how can this be implemented quickly and effectively to help these employees of the businesses, I think what you need to see is, is as quickly as possible, uh, OFPP, DOD, and, and the relevant agencies get some sort of guidance out to all of the contracting officers, um, you know, as soon as, as this week uh, would be helpful. And, and I know they're working really hard on it, and I in no way want to minimize the effort of this, right? Like, typic typical process is Congress passes a statute, a law like this, and then it takes about a year, maybe a year and a half, for the implementing regulations to be uh, issued. That, that's not gonna work here. And so let's not make the perfect the enemy of the good. Let's not, you know, I would ask for the inspectors general out there to, to be take a collaborative mindset, because I'm sure this won't be perfectly implemented. But the, the key is right now, you've got a statute that that is clear in its intent to help these contractors keep their uh, you know, employees paid. And you've got a lot of well-meaning policy implementers in the executive branch wanting to, to issue guidance, but the, the statute leaves the discretion up to the contracting officer, and, and that's a tough position to be in. There are some other things that we've seen agencies doing, um, raising the threshold for micro-purchases and things like that. What do you see coming out of this uh, situation potentially, Joe, that could stick? Changes that happen as a result of response to this crisis, but that people may discover, well, this really makes the overall acquisition process faster, which is what every agency, civilian and defense, is saying they want to happen with the acquisition process. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you're right. It will highlight again and underscore the need many of us have talked about, uh, including yourself, about uh, a, a desire to go faster, but in a smart way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, OPP under Mr. Wooten has already said, hey, we're starting to measure uh, pulp time, procurement and acquisition lead time, kind of how long does it take to let a contract? And, you know, people can quarrel around the edges of each of those things, but hey, what gets measured gets managed. And that sends a clear signal that's a priority. Um, I'm very, you know, personally proud of, of the efforts we made uh, in the past to get prompt payments enacted. So, you know, in a situation like this where cash flow is king to these businesses and these employees, um, they're not waiting for the government to, to, to pay them. And I think, you know, uh, what this act clearly shows is a continued spirit that, yes, you know, industry partners, the companies are critical to provide the goods and services the government needs, but we all also care about those employees, the individuals employed by those contractors, and making sure that they get a fair shake as well. Is it maybe time to bring back something that you worked on and your predecessor, Dan Gordon, worked on, and that's the Mythbusters campaign? And the reason I ask that is because you mentioned the contracting officers and, and guidance to them being helpful in helping them understand what they can and can't do. That was the whole point of the Mythbusters campaign was to let both contractors and vendors know you can do this. It was an emphasis on the positive. And I wonder if maybe this would be a good time to reemphasize those points that you and Dan both pushed. Yeah, I love that idea, Francis. In fact, I just spoke to someone yesterday about 
Uh, you know, they were asking for help in terms of reading through the 900 pages of the CARES Act and uh, figuring out how their business might benefit and stay open and, and keep employing their uh, their folks. And and I said, look, you know, there, there's so much out there. You know, every Tom, Dick, and Susie Esquire has published a here's what's in the CARES Act for you uh, two-pager. And, and I was like, most of my job right now with my clients is just myth-busting and saying, you know, yes, that's true, but not really, or here's an Excel spreadsheet you can use, or, um, you know, here are ways to think about it. And, and when you talk about the larger acquisition uh, system, I think you're totally right. And I go back, you know, taking all of the Mythbusters campaign and boiling it down to one thing I love to say, you don't have to get past part one of the FAR. There are 53 parts, don't have to get past part one, where it says, if this is not forbidden in this book and comports with sound business judgment, you can do it. It's not, if we haven't written it in this book, you can't do it. It is the opposite. And at a time like this, and hopefully to your point, that's an impetus for future, uh, you know, it's happening throughout the future. It's critical that everyone in our acquisition community uh, thinks like that and is solution oriented. About 30 seconds left, Joe. What do you, what will you watch coming out of the CARES Act in particular, but more broadly out of the acquisition response to the coronavirus crisis in general? Yeah, right now, uh, so much of the focus is on getting the critical and necessary PPE where it's uh, most needed, and it should be. And I think the acquisition system will, will prove some of its might in doing that. Uh, and then longer term, to your point, it'll be how can we learn from this and build sustainable improvements to our system that benefit all federal employees and contractor employees. Joe Jordan, thanks as always, my friends. Great to see you. Thanks, Francis. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You can get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.